Good morning, everyone. It's a, a, a real pleasure to, to be here this morning and to be invited to share here at Auburn. Um, our roots do go back into uh, this community now over 30 years. And uh, some of the people that uh, uh, have influenced me the most have actually been part of this assembly. Uh, Doug Robinson uh, was a, a major influence on me. I became very close friends with Chuck Giannotti during the uh, early years of uh, his time here before he returned to Rochester. And then a year ago when we uh, uh, came out of the uh, leadership of the Peterborough Free Methodist Church after uh, 31 years, um, we just had all kinds of natural uh, connections here. Some of you we knew personally. And uh, so we landed here at Auburn on the Sundays when we're not elsewhere. And uh, uh, we can't say thank you enough for the warm welcome that uh, we have received. Um, Sander Matthews uh, worked with uh, my wife Karen at Darling Insurance for over 20 years, and so that was another connection. Of course, uh, we grieve her loss, but uh, we give thanks to the Lord for uh, the fact that she's uh, safe and sound and free of a stroke after uh, an awful struggle the last year or so. I also want to say thank you to the musicians uh, here at Auburn. Uh, Karen and I have uh, been in uh, seven Free Methodist churches all over Ontario since the 1st of October in this new role that I have as president of Lorne Park Foundation. And the music at Auburn is the best that we have experienced. And we keep coming back to Auburn saying, boy, I wish some of those Free Methodist churches could uh, see what uh, Auburn's doing. Uh, and, and the young people, the incredibly gifted young talent that you have, uh, you're really blessed. I hope, I hope you realize that. Um, just a word about my present role. Uh, in 1966, Lorne Park Bible College uh, closed because of uh, failing enrollment. It was a, a small Bible college in Port Credit, which is now, of course, part of Mississauga. The Ontario government bought the buildings, and it became the first campus of Sheridan College during the beginning of the community college movement here in the province of Ontario. Uh, that fund is now over $3 million. We, we've protected the fund. There have been lots of bequests that have come to it. And uh, last semester, uh, every student who applied for assistance for uh, preparation for Christian ministry in Free Methodist Church uh, received full tuition. Uh, that's how strong that fund has become. And it's my joy to be able to administer that. It's wonderful to be able to give money to students. And uh, so uh, I know there's some similarities. There's quite a few similarities between our story and Kortha, Kortha Lakes Bible College. And so I don't know whether any of you are in leadership in that uh, ongoing uh, story. But uh, there is a way to continue the ministry of uh, uh, institutions who just... Uh, don't, aren't able to, to carry on because of changing times, and I'm uh, privileged to be part of that. Um, in your bulletin this morning, Amy, thank you so much for um, distributing. I'm still a paper person. I'm not a techie, and so this is the outline of where I'm going this morning. And uh, before I start reading the, by reading the text of the morning, I just want to tell you uh, a story as to how uh, this passage of Scripture became so important to me. In 1985, uh, Dr. Ray Stedman, who was the pastor of Peninsula Bible, Bible Church 
in Palo Alto, uh, California, uh, was speaking at Ontario Theological Seminary. He and Dr. Howard Hendricks talk about a twosome. Uh, Dr. Stedman, uh, some of you will remember him, uh, his books, Body, Life, etc., now gone to be with the Lord. Uh, but uh, Dr. Stedman opened up his Bible to this obscure passage in First Chronicles. I thought, what in the world are you going to do with this? And he opened that passage up to me in such a way that 30 years later, I've never forgotten it, and, and he began a process then in me of developing the passage uh, in terms of how uh, it has become important to me. And I found myself at times of difficulty in our lives returning to this passage of Scripture. And so um, it has been a time of tremendous change in, in, and flux in, in our lives. And uh, I have found this passage of Scripture to be uh, again, a place where I could kind of put a stake in the ground and say, I, I know what's going on in my life, Lord, and thank you for your words speaking to me in this way. So I'd like to read this passage. Again, uh, an obscure passage that comes out of the life of David. It was in the time when he was consolidating his kingdom after Saul, and he had this incredible band of, they were called mighty men. They were actually a private militia. Um, you wouldn't want this gang to be uh, uh, really, uh, they had a, a particular, uh, well, they were a, a gang of thugs is the best way to put it. But here's the story of Benaiah. Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. And he struck down an Egyptian who was seven and a half feet tall. Although the Egyptian had a spear like a weaver's rod in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Such were the exploits of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada. He too was as famous as the three mighty men. He was held in greater honor than any of the thirty, but he was not included among the three. And David put him in charge of his bodyguard. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are with us in every experience of life. Thank you that nothing comes into our lives before it goes through your hands first. Thank you that we can trust you. I pray, Lord, today that uh, your word will have meaning for us as we live our lives today. And we will thank you in your holy name. Amen. Early in January 1979, I was traveling, along with several friends, back to Asbury Seminary in Lexington, Kentucky, where I did my master's degree for the winter of that academic year. My friends agreed to meet me in Buffalo, New York, travel west along I-90 to Cleveland, Ohio, uh, southwest then to Columbus and Cincinnati, and then south on I-75 from Cincinnati down to Lexington. Not far from Cleveland, we got into a terrific snowstorm, one of the worst that I have ever been in. 
The south shore of Lake Erie is famous for storms that come up quickly, that lake effect issue, and this was that kind of storm. We never made it to our destination that day. After spending four hours uh, getting from Cleveland to Columbus, which is normally a two-hour trip, we decided to call one of our classmates who lived in Columbus and bunk in there for the night. We stayed with his family until the storm passed over early the next day. Now already some of you are thinking about the worst snowstorm that you've ever been in. In our country and in our culture, snow is often a symbol for a harsh day or a difficult period of time in our lives. In this passage of Scripture, which we look at today, snow is that kind of symbol. Tucked into this list of David's mighty men, or private militia, who helped him solidify his hold on Jerusalem and Israel after the death of Saul, is the story of Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and you're going to find out later why we're even told this father's name, who performed three heroic feats. The first heroic feat was that he struck down two of Moab's best men. Now, what does that have to do with this story? Well, let's go back and do some history. The Moabites were the children of Moab. Now, who was Moab? Moab was the son of Lot by an incestuous union with Lot's eldest daughter. Yes, that's in the book of Genesis, chapter 19, verse 37. Uh, remember... The daughters of Lot were afraid that they would never have any children because of what had taken place post-Sodom and Gomorrah. So they got their father drunk. Yes, this is, in the gospel. this is in the book of Genesis. And this child, Moab, was the result of the union of Lot and his eldest daughter. Lot was Abraham's nephew. And so Abraham's nephew... And the Moabites and the Israelites obviously were related. So the Moabites may have been family, but they weren't friends. For generations, military conflict took place between the Israelites and the Moabites. So the Moabites were a relative, but an enemy. So in the Old Testament... Moab becomes a symbol for the flesh, the carnal nature, the sinful part of our humanity that won't go away after we come to Christ. Moab is the enemy within, a relative but an enemy. And it is said, Benaiah struck down two of Moab's best men. Now I'm going to jump to the third heroic feat. The third heroic feat that Benaiah performed was the striking down of an Egyptian who was seven and a half feet tall. Now, in the scriptures, Egypt is a symbol for the world, the enemy without, the pressure that comes from the culture and pushes and tries to squeeze us into its mold the glitter and the gold, the temptation to be attracted to the things of the world. This Egyptian was much taller than Benaiah, 
Again, showing the power of temptation and the towering effect that the world has on us. But verse 23 says that although the Egyptian had a spear like a weaver's rod in his hand, Benaiah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. So obviously, he must have gone after his feet with this club and, and somehow got him off balance, stole the spear, killed him with his own spear. So Moab is a relative but an enemy and a symbol for the enemy within. Egypt is the far-off country of the prodigal son that just seemed so winsome that he absolutely had to be uh, attracted to. It's the glitter and the gold. But it's the second heroic feat of Benaiah that I want to look at with you today. He, Benaiah, also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. From that single sentence of the inspired Word of God, there is a tremendous spiritual lesson for those of us who live in the winter of 2017. Benaiah went down into a pit. Listen to it. Get the cadence of the Scripture. Nothing is in Scripture by accident. Every word matters. Also went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. A pit. A pit is a hole in the ground. A place where once you fall into, it's hard to get out of. Uh, This past summer, I was the summer pastor at Wesley Acres, which is the Free Methodist Church camp uh, near Bloomfield, Ontario, south of Belleville. Uh, We are on West Lake, and we look right across at the Sandbanks Provincial Park from the piece of property which uh, the Free Methodist Church purchased back in 1974 for $250,000, if you can believe such a thing. It's worth an awful lot more than that today. It's an absolutely beautiful place. And we had a great summer there. Two summers ago, uh, our daughter and family uh, visited us from Denver. And uh, at that time, our granddaughter, Liv, would have been 11 years of age, 2014. Uh, an extremely gifted athlete. You know, just, inc- just incredibly fit. Uh, uh, soccer, uh, has, is on a soccer team at age 10. She was touring the state of Colorado uh, playing soccer. Anyway, uh, <clears throat> the sandbanks are, of course, the sandbanks for Venture Park are the... the what you climb, you can climb from the West Lake side uh, up and down, up and down, up and down to get over to Lake Ontario. <clears throat> and so I decided that uh, I was going to take everybody over there. Hot, hot day. You've got to have your shoes on because the, sun has, the, the sand is so hot it will burn your feet. So we had a great time. We, uh, we climbed the sand dunes up and down, up and down, up and down, and then finally come over to Lake Ontario, and it's beautiful over there. You can throw stones. Stones have been shaped by the water. They're flat. It's just a lovely spot. On the way back, <coughs> uh, this Olivia, our granddaughter, 11 years of age, uh, decided that she uh, was going to do some shortcuts. I guess I was part of the shortcut theory as well. 
And so that meant that we not only had to climb up going down, but we, we took some that were fairly precipitous in terms of their slope. This kid is 11 years old. She's in great shape. She can run like a deer. And she's just going up and down those things, no problem at all. Well, I thought, you know what? What she can do, I can do too. Now, I was a very good athlete, uh, was past tense. I ran track in university, and so I thought, you know what? I know I can keep up with her and do what she's doing. Well, Sari, um, I'm told that what happened next, if it had been uh, taped, would have made it on YouTube uh, and would have had multiple millions of hits because of what happened. The, the best way to put it is that my body outran my legs. And I went down one of those unbelievable steep sand dunes and came up. Oh, I can still feel it too. In fact, when the doctor looked at the x-ray, uh, which I had the next day, he said, I've only ever seen that rib broken in a motor vehicle accident. What were you doing? <laughs> I had a broken collarbone and broken ribs. Anyway, I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be in a pit of sand on a snowy day and face a lion. A pit. A hole in the ground that you can't get out of. In fact, if you're looking at difficulty and trouble, a pit is the worst possible place to be in. And then add to that the thickening plot of a snowy day. It's one thing to go up and down sand dunes on a summer's day, and, and if you do it right, you don't fall and break your collarbone and, and ribs. But add to that the dilemma that it was a snowy day when Benaiah went down volitionally, willingly, into that pit. So you have the worst possible time, a snowy day, the worst possible place, a pit, and now the plot thickens, ratcheted up one more notch. There's a lion in that pit. You're in a pit on a snowy day with a lion. The king of beasts, fierce, ferocious, fatal. Worst possible place, worst possible time, Worst possible enemy. Benaiah, just one, just one sentence of scripture. Benaiah went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. Friends, what we have here is a window into the Christian life. The enemy of Benaiah was that lion. And in the New Testament... Who is pictured as a lion? Small L, not the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the Messiah. Small L, it's Satan. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. The arch enemy of the Christian life is Satan, who is like a lion looking for someone to devour. 
And do you know when this enemy always appears? On the worst possible day, in the worst possible place, at the worst possible time in our life, Satan attacks. He attacks in moments of trouble and turmoil in the human odyssey. In times of physical illness, in times of emotional distress, in times of inner struggle, in times of family unrest. The lion doesn't come on a, on a bright summer's day, on a bright winter's day, when we're on the mountaintop of our spiritual life. He comes on one of those dull days that Brian was talking about earlier. A dull winter's day when there's fresh snow on the ground and we're in the pit. On a bone-chilling day when our fingers are numb by that cold north wind, the lion comes, and again, this is another symbol of the pit, at a time and a place when you can't get away. The worst possible place, worst possible time, worst possible enemy. But, now here's the good news. Rather than this being a word of discouragement, the story of Benaiah is a word of encouragement. Because what happened? He killed the lion. He overcame what was taking place in that pit on that snowy day. He was victorious over the enemy. And again, that's the symbolism here for us as believers in 2017. We too can be victorious over this roaring lion of our lives. But how did he do it? Like we're told that, that he snatched the Egyptian's spear from his hand, using a club probably on his feet. But we're not given us any signal whatsoever as to how he defeated this lion. How did he win? Well, we're not exactly told. This was the piece that Dr. Ray Stedman opened up for me all those many years ago that I go back to time and time again. There is a clue in the meaning of Benaiah's and his father's names. Now, again, we know from the Old Testament that sometimes names are a really important part of how we figure out what the story, uh, uh, what, what's going on. Emmanuel, what does it mean? God with us. Uh, one of my favorite examples is Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah names his children. Remember that story? Just after Isaiah 7 and the announcement that the virgin would conceive there's a, a further layering of, of what God would do in the future. And in Isaiah chapter 8, he names one of his boys. Now get a hold of this. Malar Shalah Hashbaz. Which means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. So if you look at the names, that's why names are so important. Uh, my uh, Karen's great aunt, uh, has given to me uh, the uh, family tree. She's now in her late 90s, and I've been given this incredible tome uh, of, of family history. And, and uh, 
Aunt Dorothy absolutely was aghast. Now, I hope nobody's named this name in the, in the Auburn family, but she was absolutely aghast that one of her nieces had named a child Cricket. And cricket, of course, is in this family tree. Well, I don't know what the meaning of, I know what a cricket is, but I don't know what the meaning of cricket is, but I know that sometimes naming children names like cricket isn't a real good idea down the road of time, especially in the schoolyard, uh, when it might be a point in which there would be some uh, teasing that would go on. Mallor Shalahashbaz probably fits into that category. So, what does Jehoiada, remember I said earlier, why would, why would the writer, why would the chronicler include the name of Jehoiada's father? Why, why would he do that? Every word counts in Scripture. Nothing's there by accident. Well, Jehoiada means God knows. Jehoiada means God knows. Um, just in a, a few weeks, I'm going to have the privilege of returning to Asbury Seminary for a leadership conference that I'm going to be able to attend. I'm looking so looking forward to going back to my alma mater. Uh, I'm going to fly. I'm not going to drive because I-75, and I've done that before. I know what it can be like in January and February. Anyway, um, I love to fly. I just love to fly. But um, and I, I have a hard time understanding people that don't like to fly because to me it's, it's safer than the 401 in the middle of, of winter. But uh, I'm really, really glad every time, I, uh, every time we take off, every time we land, I, I look to see where the air traffic controllers, uh, great, huge, high uh, building is because it gives me a sense of security knowing that the pilot, who I trust, also has another set of eyes and a, and a more important set of eyes in some ways because that air traffic controller is directing traffic. And it, it's saying it's safe to land now. The other plane has cleared the runway. You're, you're free to land. You see, that's, that's the God knows part of the life of the Christian. He's the air traffic controller. He stands outside of our own history. He doesn't stand outside of history per se, but he stands outside and above our own history. And he sees the big picture, and he understands what's going on because he knows. I mean, it's central to Christian theology that God is omniscient, that he is all-knowing. And that's what Baha'i's father's name means, God knows. There's another aspect of what God knows that is crucial in, in coming to terms with the pit on a snowy day and the lion of life. And that is that Jesus knows. He was in all points tempted like as we are. Hebrews chapter 4 15, 16. He, he's this great high priest, the writer of Hebrews says. He's the person that we can go to because he has a full knowledge of everything that we have ever or will ever experience, including human death. It, it's the theology of identification here where we can identify with Jesus because he has fully identified with us in our human story. He, 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 was, he was incarnate. He became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And so 
we can, we can identify with him and he can identify with us. There's a communication going on that is because of the knowledge that he has of our life and our life story. So, Jehoiada. We're not told how Benaiah killed that lion, but we are told his father's name and his father's name is God knows. Well, that raises the second question then. What does Benaiah mean? Ah, God builds. God knows. God builds. I'm intrigued by a, a man named Andrew Murray. And if you look at your outline, you will see that I have placed in the outline uh, this four-point uh, message, I guess you would say, that Andrew Murray, who lived from 1828 to 1917, he's, he's one of the most important uh, people in the history of Christian missions. And uh, he was a South African, uh, spent his whole life in South Africa, but he was involved in multiple, multiple ways uh, in, in terms of missions involvement. He, he actually believed that missions was the primary purpose of, of, of the Christian church, that that was its, its reason for being. Uh, wrote uh, in Christ with, the, in, with Christ in the School of Prayer, a number of books that some of you probably have read. Uh, there was a crisis in Andrew Murray's life, and uh, these uh, sentences became part of his uh, story in terms of things that, that uh, he is remembered for. Four things that he believed to be true about God in terms of how he deals with us in the events of our lives. Number one, he brought me here. And the concept here is appointment. Now, uh, as you know, uh, there is a lot of difference between the, the theological underpinnings of the Wesleyan movement, which Free Methodism is part of, and the Brethren community. And, and yet, as I have grown older, I see less and less differences. And I think that, that uh, there's been too much made of the differences uh, between the two major parts of the Christian family, the Calvinist and the Wesleyan movement. One of them is that I think that we have minimized to our sorrow in the Wesleyan family the concept of, of, of the, the appointment of God, the, 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 the sovereignty of God. And, and I, have, I am now at the place in my own Christian journey where I am unable to, uh, to, to believe even though there are times when I cannot fully grasp the why of what is going on in my life. I'm now at the place in my life of saying, God knew this and brought this into my life for some purpose. Appointment. He brought me here. It isn't by accident. It isn't by accident that what we're going through what you're going through right now, it, it was known of God long before it came to us. He will keep me here. The second point of Andrew Murray's uh, thesis. And that's that whole idea of, of the keeping grace of God. Not only does He save us, but He keeps us. The keeping grace. This trial will be a blessing. You see, 
when, when you're dealing with the problem of evil, with the problem of suffering, there's really only two ways to land on that issue. Either it has purpose or it doesn't have purpose. It's either a willy-nilly world where you just get whatever you get, or there's some reason for what you're going through right now that God is somehow wanting to weave into the tapestry of your life. It, it, it can't be both. It has to have meaning. And that's why I think Christianity makes so much sense because Christianity says there is purpose in suffering. Paul says throughout the whole book of Romans, you know, uh, embrace your sufferings because suffering creates perseverance and endurance and all those athletic terms. You know, they, uh, the, the way in which you get better as an athlete is you keep putting your body to the test. And that's the way it is in the Christian life too. The suffering that we go through is not without meaning. It's not without purpose. So this trial will be a blessing. And then finally, his good time will bring me out again. The whole issue of, of timing. Now, do we like it when we're in the pit with the lion on the snowy day? No, we do not. I do not personally. But the issue is, what am I going to do with this experience? Is it somehow going to be something that, that God will be able to use to further His purposes in my life to make me more like Jesus? Or will I reject it? Will I push it off, say it's meaningless, and it will not uh, be somehow uh, of any significance in my life story? Those are the, the choices that we have. Um, I have, I'm so grateful for the life that I, I've had as a pastor. I have no regrets. Um, it was a struggle for me to accept my call. I grew up uh, in a pastor's home and I knew a little bit about the life before, before I actually embraced it, and, and it was a struggle to do that. But now looking back, like David says so many times in the Psalms, uh, now looking back, no regrets whatsoever. One of the things that, that I had the privilege of doing and continued to do was I was invited into people's lives, even though I wasn't a family member, at times of crisis in their lives. And there's an incredible honor, an incredible gift to be able to be given that kind of, of, of a, a remarkable, remarkable uh, advantage, uh, opportunity to be part of people's lives. Um, some of you may know Janet Williamson. Uh, Janet was uh, a teacher here in, in Peterborough. Uh, she was a single mom. And uh, her son Eric was diagnosed with cancer very early in life. And uh, he uh, passed away uh, before his 20th birthday. I think he was 19. Uh, and uh, it was, you know, it was just an awful, awful experience for, obviously, for Janet to have gone through all of those years of, of, of cancer and then thinking that, you know, Eric was going to make it back out of remission into more active treatment finally uh, did not survive. I'll never, ever forget the day that I got a phone call saying that I needed to go to the hospital. Uh, that Janet's second child, elder, uh, older than, than Eric, 
Tanya, who had just graduated from the University of Western Ontario with an honors degree in genetics. I mean, this kid was on her way to being a really important, uh, probably physician, but at least a, a medical researcher. She had, she had just gone to the hospital and she had been diagnosed with brain cancer. So here's this young single mother who is abandoned by her husband with two small children. The younger of the two, Eric, dies of cancer after, I'm going to say, he'd been diagnosed when, when four, so probably 15 years. She had walked with him through multiple treatments. Tanya had, had come through all that experience of watching her brother only now to be diagnosed with the very same type of cancer that had killed her brother. And I'll never forget the day down at St. Joseph's Hospital before it closed that, that Janet said goodbye to Tanya as well. I had her funeral. She was buried in the cemetery in London uh, near the University of Western Ontario. All her classmates surrounding, it was just unbelievable. Now, if ever a person had reason to walk away from God, in my view, it would be a Janet Williamson. Janet Williamson today is one of the most vibrant, godly women that I know. During that time, uh, as, as she wrestled with what had happened to her, and now, of course, left not only without husband, but now left with both of her children gone with cancer, she, she came up with this little graph. And I have carted this around with me for years and years now. Tanya's gone at least a decade. Well, St. Joseph's Hospital was... was where she died, so it's, it's longer than St. Joseph's been closed. So it may be 15 years now. But she, she came up with this little diagram, and uh, you're not going to be able to see it, but I'll, I'll show you the flow of it. It's, it's a little flow chart that goes like this. So the first little block up here is uh, input and truth are the two words that she has in the box. And so she's saying... Jesus and the Bible and church all input this concept of truth. Truth causes growth that moves down to this second box. And in growth, I expand in Christ. I, ex I grow in Christ. And then she has the sentence, with truth comes mystery. Have you experienced that in your Christian life too? Have you got it all figured out? The farther you go with this, this thing called Christianity, this, this walk with Jesus, you got it figured out? Uh-uh. The farther you go, the more mystery you're going to experience. So what do you do with the mystery? Well, in the next block over here, she has step number three. Mystery does not fit my understanding, so I must make a choice. The choice, do I box God in to fit my limited understanding or do I grow in mystery? 
That's the issue right there. That's, that's, the, that's the fulcrum on which this whole debate rests. I either move towards more acceptance of the reality of mystery, of the sovereignty of God, of, of stuff that I just don't know, or I walk away. If I choose to walk away, then that, that, that's a choice that we have. If I don't, then I, in theory, become more and more like Jesus because that's what he did. My God, my God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. So the fourth little box up here in this little circle. If I choose to grow in mystery, I allow for more input of truth. And this becomes the pattern of the Christian life. Now, I don't want for one minute to minimize what you're going through today. I know what it feels like to get a phone call that totally changes your life. But I, I do also believe that there is this point at which we have to make a decision. And I think it is a conscious choice where we say, okay, Lord, I'm in a pit on a snowy day and the lion is ripping me to shreds, just wants to destroy my life, the life of my family. But I'm going to choose to go through this. I don't know where it's going to lead me. I have no idea what the story will be at the end of the road, but I'm going to trust you. I mentioned uh, Sander Matthews. Did you uh, see her open Bible at the uh, visitation on, uh, on Friday night? Uh, I, I went right to it. I, I'm fascinated by uh, older Bibles. I, I love to hear the stories of believers who have been through uh, difficult times. And Sander Matthews' life was not an easy life. We all know that. Did you see where her Bible was open to? It was open to Romans chapter 8. For we know that in all things God works for the best for those who love him who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Lord, we desperately need your help. At those times in our lives when the enemy, the roaring lion, would seek to devour. Thank you that you know. Thank you that you build. And we have the option of being part of that building project if we will allow you to do what you wish to do in our lives. It's tough. It's awful when we see the effects of the lion destroying and ravaging those that we love and care for. How we pray, Jesus, today 
that you would be in every situation represented in this assembly today where you are at work but where we can't see it. May we by faith today believe that you are at work and that what will result will be for our good and for your glory. And we will thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.